Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. To those of us who live along the coast of California, earthquakes are a living legend. That legend is closely associated with the San Andreas Fault, an earthquake line which runs roughly 800 miles through California, forming the tectonic boundary between the Pacific Plate and the North American Plate. More than just a legend, earthquakes over the millennia have rattled California in multiple events close in time referred to as earthquake storms. That's close in geological time, not so much in human time. So, as you might expect, this edition of Radio Curious is about earthquakes. Our guest is John Dvorak, Ph.D., a geophysicist and author of Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault. He's currently employed by the United States Geological Survey, working for the Institute of Astronomy in Hilo, Hawaii. And formerly, John Dvorak taught at the University of Hawaii, UCLA, Washington University in St. Louis, and the Smithsonian Institute. In our visit, recorded on October 31st, 2014, from his office in Hilo, Hawaii, we began our conversation when I asked him to describe what an earthquake storm is. Well, one of the things we've learned about earthquakes in the last 20, 30 years is that they're not random events and they don't reoccur like clockwork. We've learned that earthquakes, even large ones, come clustered in time and space. And when there's a cluster of large earthquakes over a period of a few decades, that is an earthquake storm. How is that manifested on a material plane that uh, those of us who live near earthquake faults can uh, perceive? There's this general feeling that earthquakes are sort of isolated events, that they just spontaneously happen, they happen randomly, and then once you have one, that's it. But now we know that earthquakes actually can cause other earthquakes to happen. How does that occur? Well, that occurs primarily because of a stress transfer. Now, let's step back. You know, the uh, outer part of the Earth is divided into these plates that are moving around. And as the plates grind against each other, that's where most of the earthquakes occur. But the plates don't just slip easily past one, one another. They hang up, and this buildup of stress gets released by earthquakes. When one earthquake happens, that releases only part of the stress. And so there's usually a whole series of quakes that happen. Can you describe a plate, where it is, how big it is, can we see it? Yes. The, uh, the surface of the Earth is divided into something like, like a dozen major plates and maybe a couple dozen small plates. Certainly the most, uh, among the most famous one is the Pacific Plate. Essentially, almost the entire Pacific uh, Basin is the Pacific Plate. And then uh, most people um, in the United States live on the North American Plate. And that consists of all of North America, the continent of North America, and even the western half of the uh, Atlantic Ocean. So it's these plates that are moving. That's correct. 
These plates are moving. They're moving at a rate of about an inch a year or so. And so from year to year, there isn't very much that happens. But over centuries, and certainly over thousands to millions of years, big things happen. We get lots of earthquakes. We get mountain building. We get uh, eruptions happening. You mentioned that uh, the earthquakes cause mountains. What do we see from a geological perspective when we are near these mountains that indicate that, other than their height? Well, that's, that is certainly the part that's, that's most obvious, is the height. Let's take something like the uh, Sierra Nevadas. Anyone who, who crosses the, the Sierra Nevadas um, immediately understands that the east side is much steeper than the west side. The whole Sierra Nevadas have actually been uplifted and tilted. And the reason the east side is so steep that's where the active faults are. So the opposite would be true from the east-west perspective uh, for the Andes that run along the western edge of South America. Yes, the Andes are at a much larger scale, and they are right at a collision of a plate, the South American plate, and then there's actually an oceanic plate out there, which is running under South America. The collisions that you mentioned, those have occurred over millennia. Looking back at the Earth, the way we can see it now, are there indicators of how rapidly the rise of the mountains occurred, whether they be the Andes or the Sierra Nevada? Well, there certainly are indications in the rocks, rocks themselves. Uh, sort of one of, the, one of the most important things to realize in geology is at the highest point on the surface of the Earth, Mount Everest, those rocks used to be on the floor of the ocean. And um, those were pushed up. And if you look at various places, such as parts of the Sierra Nevada, but more importantly, places like the Alps and the uh, Himalayas, what you will get is a whole series of layers of rocks that have been thrusted up. And they'll have fossils in them, and we can, can, can certainly date how long it took, it took these mountains to rise. Can you give us some examples as to how long it took the mountains to rise in the areas we mentioned, the Sierra Nevada and the Andes and the Himalayas? Well, the Sierra Nevadas are very, are very young. In fact, there's quite a debate. Most people will accept that the Sierra Nevadas probably have ro risen in the last three to five million years. But there is some indication that it may have only taken one to two million years to rise. Now, the Himalayas are a little different. They're certainly much broader. They are the most uh, massive mountains on the planet. And those have probably been pushing up for some 10 to 20 million years. A few minutes ago, we were talking about an earthquake storm where there's a lot of activity in a short period of time. What could a person see in a lifetime if they were able to observe an earthquake storm or a couple of earthquake storms? Well, there's, there's actually at least one and possibly two or three earthquake storms going on right now. Uh, the most famous one is occurring in the country of Turkey. 
It's occurring along what's called the North Anatolian Fault. It runs right on the north edge, east to west across Turkey. And when I say there's been an earthquake storm, there's been 13, that's 13 major earthquakes in between 1939 and 1999 in just 60 years. Many people have remember the Sumatra quake in 2004. That area was very quiet. And then suddenly, in about 2001, we started getting large earthquakes. And there's now been actually six large earthquakes on Sumatra. And so that is an earthquake storm. So what would one see when they look at the consequences of the earthquake storm in Sumatra, for example? How much earth movement? Well, in Sumatra, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of earth movement. Uh, One of those large earthquakes, for example, the one in 2004, the one that created the the, uh, large tsunami, the earth moved about 40 feet in a little less than a minute. And that ran over a couple hundred miles. The movement of 40 feet in less than a minute, is that lateral or vertical? Well, in the case of Sumatra, it was mostly vertical. Now, if we go back and we look at California, the San Andreas, people certainly have heard about or are familiar with the 1906 earthquake. That one moved 20 feet, but that was horizontally. And it broke over a distance of almost 300 miles. Well, John Dvorak, the title of your book, Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault, brings us to the San Andreas Fault. Tell us about the volatile future of this area. Well, one of the things we know about the San Andreas Fault, if we go back about the tectonic plate, the San Andreas Fault is there because the North American plate is moving out to the west, and the Pacific plate is moving more to the northwest. And because the directions aren't the same, those two are grinding against each other. And the grinding, the place where these plates are moving, that's the San Andreas Fault. You talk about the volatile future. Why the concern? Well, the concern is the San Andreas Fault specifically, and California in general, has been rather rather quiet in terms of earthquakes for the last 100 years. Let me give you an example. In the years from about 1830 up to 1906, there were about 18 strong earthquake shakings in the San Francisco area, Eight, 18. In the next 70 years, there was only one. And now we've had another 35 years, and there's been six. So there certainly is a change in the earthquake pattern. And that lull right there, that lull of of, uh, 70 years, that happened to be the time of the great urban expansion in California. And that happened to be a time when there just weren't very many earthquakes. So that's a coincidental sociological event as opposed to a geological event. Right. It just so happened that during the urban expansion, California happened to be very quiet. And we know that that cannot persist. That quiet period was unusual. And so out there in the future, 
probably within our lifetimes, there are going to be more large earthquakes. Or to put it very bluntly, seismically, the California of our parents and grandparents is not the California that we're going to have in our life. I want to know more about that, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with John Dvorak from his office in Hilo, Hawaii. He's the author of Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. John, what would be the future for us as compared to the experience of our parents and grandparents? What people in California should realize is that The seismic activity that their parents and grandparents experienced is not what's going to happen in the future. Uh, There's a variety of reasons to suspect that in the next few decades, there'll be one or more major earthquakes in California. What does major mean, again, manifested on a material plane and how it might affect the people who live in the critical area? Well, it's probably best to give an example. If people remember in 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake, the one that occurred during the World Series, that is just on the edge of being a major earthquake. And that one caused something like $20 billion worth of damage, and it uh, unfortunately some 60 people died in it. But that is still somewhere on the edge between moderate and major. So we're talking about one or more earthquakes like that are greater happening. Earthquakes are measured on the Richter scale with numbers between 0 and approximately 12. What do those numbers represent? Well, the size of an earthquake is put as a magnitude. And physically, all, all that that means is the amount that the Earth is actually moving. For example, if I'm 100 miles away from an earthquake and the ground beneath my feet moves, say, one-tenth of an inch, we'll just say that's a magnitude 3. If there's an earthquake in the same spot and the ground moves an entire inch, that's a 4. And, of course, if it moves 10 inches, that's a 5. So magnitude is related to the amount of ground movement itself. The bigger question is trying to relate this to acceleration and energy release. And in that case, there's a huge change as we go from a magnitude 6 to a magnitude 7, about a factor of 30 in energy. And so to, to try to put this in perspective, the Loma Prieta, the 1989 earthquake, compared to 1906, 1906 released anywhere from 30 to 100 times more energy. And the 1906 was what measurement? A 1906 was just below a magnitude 8. And the Loma Prieta in uh, 1989? That is uh, usually set as about a 6.9. And then the one at Napa Valley that occurred uh, just a few months ago, that's a 6.0. To go from that Napa Valley earthquake to what happened in 1906, we're roughly talking about anywhere from 200 to 500 times more energy getting released. 
the result of the energy being released is, again, the movement of the Earth? That's right. The um, buildup of earthquakes happen because as the plates move around, the outside of the Earth is elastic like a rubber band. And as the plates grind against each other, the band gets stretched more and more. And eventually it snaps, and that's an earthquake. And so earthquake energy is the release of elastic energy. So going back to the measurements that you were giving, it's called the Richter scale, named after Charles Richter. Again, the difference between a 6.1 and a 6.2. How is that calculated? How is it felt? Well, there really isn't much of a difference between a 6.1 and a 6.2. The way that people actually do it is using a variety of instruments, looking at the frequency of the waves and so forth. Ultimately, what's important is the amount of energy that gets released. And roughly, when you go up one magnitude from six to seven, you go about a factor of 30 in energy. When I'm talking about energy, energy comes in many different forms. Energy out of the sun, elastic energy of earthquakes, energy of atomic explosions. This is uh, the amount of energy which is getting released suddenly within the Earth. So the energy then is earthquake energy, but it can be compared to atomic explosions or from the sun. Uh, That's right. I guess one of the ways of trying to relate this, the largest explosion ever, which was an atomic blast in Russia, was, I think about equivalent to a magnitude 7 earthquake. So let's move on to the prediction of earthquakes. And there's a marvelous little paragraph in your book in which you say something to the effect that a marvelous way of creating dissension or controversy at a meeting of seismologists is to talk about how earthquakes are predicted. That's right. Say you walk into a bar, it's filled up with seismologists, and you're anxious for a fight. All you do is bring up the topic of earthquake prediction. It's uh, deeply passionate. It's passionate because people have built their their careers on it, and some people have lost careers because of of trying to, uh, to predict earthquakes. It all boils down to the question of the physics of earthquakes. Are they spontaneous events, in which case you will never be able to predict them, or does something go on in in the Earth that for seconds or days or weeks before that tells you this is predetermined, that is going to happen in seconds or, or hours or days from now? That's probably the most crucial question in seismology today. How would you answer that question? Whether earthquakes can be predicted or not depends on exactly what is a large earthquake. Let me explain that. Earthquakes are happening all the time. Like if you sit in California, they're popping up all the time, small ones. Is a large earthquake just one of these small ones that happen to grow big, so it's spontaneous? Or is a big earthquake fundamentally different? Is it there has to be a large slip of the fault to produce a large earthquake. That is a very fundamental question in physics. It's 
right at the right you're right at the door of research right now. It is very hotly debated, and there is data to support both views. And once we answer that question, then we'll know whether it will ever be possible to actually predict earthquakes. What is your personal prediction or your personal analysis on this dichotomy of earthquake predictions? Well, understand that that's purely emotional. And that, of course, is why it's such a hotly debated question. Emotionally, my intuition says that these things must come with some, with some kind of preparation. And so there must be something seconds or hours or days before a large earthquake. Uh, but exactly what the physics is, is has still escaped us. Let's move into the area of folklore or soothsayers. When people in history have said, an earthquake is coming, is there any connection there that is scientifically justifiable from your perspective? Um, no, no, no. No one has ever been able to, to um, predict an earthquake. Uh, the best that can be done, which is done right now, and, and this, people might think it's splitting hairs, but, but it is possible to forecast that is, to give a probability over a time range when one might occur. And so what, what we're able to do right now is forecast earthquakes. And that might, be, might sound like we're splitting hairs, but a forecast means that what we can give out is a probability of these events happening over a very long, long uh, time period. In order to give a scientific prediction of an earthquake, you need three things. You have to be able to identify the fault that it's going to occur on. You have to be able to say how large this earthquake is going to be. You also have to be able to give a reasonable, a small time period as to when it's going to happen. Hopefully that's a matter of days and not much more than weeks. And nobody has ever been able to do that. Uh, compared to the prediction of a volcanic eruption, which I understand can be a bit more precise, earthquake prediction is still vague. Uh, that's correct. I've worked a great deal on active volcanoes. And the difference between trying to predict an eruption as opposed to trying to predict an earthquake, eruptions are preceded anywhere by minutes, to weeks by flurries of earthquakes and the uplift of the ground. That is, you know, when the molten uh, material is actually rising and breaking through. It takes some time for it to actually break. Again, it takes minutes to days or weeks. Earthquakes, uh, it's possible that they are just spontaneous events. And if that's the case, there there's no chance of predicting them. And so... If, there's, if we are going to be able to predict them, you've got to find out what is, what is happening inside the Earth that actually prepares it for a large earthquake. And that's yet to be determined. That's right. The best we can do is just give the, these long-range forecasts. 
over a period of decades. But nobody can come down and say within a period of days or weeks and identify a fault and tell you how large it's going to be. So that takes us to the issue of fracking as a way of releasing natural gas, among other things. Is there any geological connection in your mind between fracking and future earthquakes? Well, I'll, I'll put this very bluntly. There is a connection between fracking and earthquakes. That is very clear. Uh, people have done a number of studies. It's clear it's happening. It's happening right now in Oklahoma. What, what is unsure, however, is whether fracking can actually produce large earthquakes. And that's what, what part of the debate is about. But certainly smaller earthquakes, um, magnitudes threes, fours, and even up to five, that certainly is caused by fracking. Well, John Dvorak, author of Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment in your life that changed your life? Well, um, certainly certainly the big one was the uh, birth of my children. But if you're talking about geology, it was standing standing just very close to a volcano in Indonesia that exploded in 1982. It, it was one of those moments. It was an epiphany. Were you expecting the explosion when you were there? Uh, yes, it had all the signs. Um, uh, the ground had been, had been moving slowly. Uh, there had been a buildup of earthquakes for, for a couple hours. Um, but, but, but for various reasons, because of the number of people around, we uh, were not able to, to actually ask people to leave. And so, so we pretty much had to just, just uh, stay there and watch it. And can you share with us what you would like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life? What I would like to do is change people's perspective about the planet. Make people understand how dynamic the planet is. And you can actually see this just by looking out your window. Hopefully change people's views when they look at mountains, or when they go hiking, or even when they swim in the ocean. And finally, John Dvorak, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Uh, yes. Uh, right now, Hilo, Hawaii, there's a lava flow that's going through a community out here. And uh, there's a book, it happens to be a novel, but there's a book that sort of talked about an eruption on this island and the impact it would have. And that book is called Daughters of Fire by Tom Peake. And it was published about a year ago by Coa Press. Well, John Dvorak, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Well, it was my pleasure. John Dvorak, Ph.D., is a geophysicist and author of Earthquake Storms, The Fascinating History and Volatile Future of the San Andreas Fault. He's currently employed by the United States Geological Survey, working for the Institute of Astronomy in Hilo, Hawaii. The book John Dvorak recommends is Daughters of Fire by Tom Peake. 
This program was recorded on October 31st, 2014. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. They're all free to listen and download and share anytime, anywhere is my gift to you. Our programs are published weekly, normally on Tuesday evening. Your comments, ideas, and suggestions are always appreciated, and we do enjoy hearing from you. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. Postal mail is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541. Angie Voyles Askham is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.